In of October, I gave a challenge for people to really be in the Word. So I don't know how many people really took me up on that, but my challenge was for every day for the whole month of October that you would read the, the Bible. And I know that there are people who did it. I know there were a group of people who tried and failed. Um, I know that there are people who tried and have continued. And so um, I, I'm encouraged by that. I think that's great. Um, and, and, but if you've really read much of the Bible and you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, those are often called the Gospels. If you've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, it is impossible to go more than like a page without seeing Jesus do something amazing. Like you can, you can look through it and you can just again and again and again, you see something amazing. You see him calm a storm. You see him walk on water. You see Jesus feed 5,000 people with just a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. You see him feed 4,000 people. You see him kind of tell the future about how people will deny him, about how people will betray him, about the fact that he's going to die, that he will rise again. You see Jesus do all of these crazy things. You see Jesus um, teach with authority. You see him walk up to a tree and curse the tree, and then they come back and the tree's totally dead. So if you read through, you see Jesus do these amazing things. You see him stump people with his teaching. You see him forgive sins. You see him turn water into wine. And as you read through, you see all these amazing things. And you can't go another page without seeing Jesus heal somebody. You see him heal both people who are sick, people who have demons, who like cast out demons. And it's, if you read through it, if you really never read much of the Bible, when you begin reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you are going to be confronted with, who is this Jesus guy? Is this real? Or is this just stories? You'll see, people, you'll see Jesus heal lepers, people who have leprosy. You'll see him heal a centurion's servant. You'll see him heal a man with a demon who was running around naked around a cemetery. And then the very next chapter, Jesus, boom, Jesus heals him and the guy's clothed and in his right mind. And you're confronted with who is this Jesus. You, you see him heal a paralytic. You see him heal a blind man. You see him people who are lame from birth, people with a withered hand, all the sick, a boy who has a demon, he falls into the fire often, and Jesus heals him. You see Jesus um, heal a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, someone who's deaf, a man with many demons, a woman who's hunched over, 10 lepers, people who are invalids. You see him heal people who are close up. You see him heal people who are far away from him. You see him heal with a touch, with a word, and with his spit. That's a crazy one. You see Jesus, just the fringe of his garment being touched and people being healed. And as you read through this, you're confronted with, who is this guy? The other thing that you see is you see as the, all those healings go on, that there's a bunch of different reasons that is kind of stated or implied as to why the healing happened. You see people imploring Jesus, please, please heal this person. You see people begging. You see um, a scene being caused. I assume that if we were around a cemetery and someone was crazy running around naked, it would cause a scene, right? So sometimes Jesus heals because people are begging him, imploring him. Sometimes there's just a scene that's going on, and so he interjects himself. There's times where he heals to display his works. There's times where he heals because that's why he came. Sometimes he heals because there's a physical need and he wants to show how he fixed the physical need to show there's a spiritual need. You see Jesus heal because of faith, right? The woman who bumped into him and touched the fringe of his garment who had been bleeding for 12 years, she did it because she believed that if she just touched the fringe of the garment, she'd be healed. So you see faith healing people. 
Another time when, when that paralytic is healed, they open up the ceiling and four guys lower their friend down on a mat. And Jesus says, because of your faith, he is healed. So you see these crazy things happening all throughout the Bible, all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all these things that Jesus does, and you begin to see reasons why he does it. Today, though, we are going to look at one of the healings that he does that I would say is one of the most unique healings that Jesus did. And I think it's unique for three reasons. One, I think it's unique because of what he does. I think it's, two, it's unique because of why he does it. And three, I think it's unique because what it teaches us. So we are going to be in Luke chapter 7, but before we do, I kind of want to do a reminder of where we've been, of what we're doing. Obviously, we're in a church, so we're talking about Jesus. That seems um, basic, but that's not always the case. So we're looking at Jesus' life right now. We're looking at how did he live his life? How did he surrender his life? And we've said things like Jesus surrendered his will to God. He surrendered to have time alone with God, to spend time in the Word. He surrendered to work and rest. He surrendered his reputation he surrendered up to, um, to a posture of humility, to a posture of grace. He surrendered to the pursuit of possessions. Last week, Kevin shared that he surrendered to wanting to have his treasures on earth. He didn't. He sought to have his treasures in heaven. Thanks a lot, Kevin, for kicking our butts last week with that. But today we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 7, and the kind of the background of Luke chapter 7 is Jesus has been doing all these different healings, okay? And people, he's, he's gotten 12 followers, and then there's this great crowd of people that begins to follow him. I mean, I think for all of us, if we saw someone do all these crazy things, we would be like, i got to get a little closer look. What's going on here? How's he do that? Where's the magic? Is he, was that person not really sick and pretending? And like, you would be mesmerized by it. And these people are mesmerized. So, so Jesus is, has been doing all this stuff, and he's got this great crowd. The great crowd gets to be as many as 5,000 men plus women and children. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's this great crowd that's with him. And so as we turn into to Luke chapter 7, Jesus has this huge crowd around him. And he decides to go to the city of Nain, N-A-I-N. It's the same name now. It's a village that still exists, small village. Um, it's about 25 miles south and a little bit west of Capernaum. Jesus has been in Capernaum. He's been all around the Sea of Galilee, going, teaching, doing all of these things. He goes 25 miles, and the text really doesn't give us any indication as to why. He goes 25 miles with this crowd. It's estimated that by walking with the rocky terrain that it is, it'd be a nine-mile walk. Jesus wakes up one morning, walks nine miles, goes to the city of Nain, does a healing, and leaves and walks back. It is a massive road trip. I don't think he stopped to get those special treats like I always do. You know, I got to have corn nuts or Fritos or something on road trips. But Jesus goes on this 25-mile trip, heals someone 25 miles back. Um, <clears throat> what's crazy about it is Jesus has this huge crowd around him, and as soon as he gets to the gate of the city of Nain, he's confronted with another crowd. The crowds, like, converge. Just think of two crowds, just boom. Um, it says that it's a considerable crowd, and the crowd is there leaving the city gate for a funeral. If you have a Bible, you can flip open to Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17. <clears throat> this is what the Bible says. Soon afterward, he, speaking of Jesus, went to a town called Nain. 
And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And the Lord saw her, and he had compassion on her. He said to her, do not weep. Then he came and he touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray. God, as we read through the Bible, we are confronted with this um, unbelievable picture of Jesus. And all of us have to decide, what do we think about this Jesus? So God, I pray that as I, as I communicate this, that it will help us see a new picture of who this Jesus is that it will maybe confirm what we already know. It will remind us of things that we needed to be reminded of. And God, you would use it to grow us, to teach us, and to shape us into the people that you desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I think that we can very easily read through a text and just not, like, like, see what it says, but not enter into it. And, um... I really struggled with how much I pushed to put us into this text because this is a weighty text. And I don't want to in any way like pull on heartstrings, but I think that if we don't enter into this text, we will fail to learn the gravity of what we can learn if we enter into it. So the crowds converge, and there's a woman, and her son has died. This text, if you really know much of the Bible, it reminds you of something that happened in, in the book of Kings, Elijah. There were two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, prior to Jesus, Elijah brought a man back from the dead. And the text is fairly similar to this. Um, but the way that the, the prophet Elijah brings the person back to life is he lays over him and he prays, God, let this boy live. And he gets up, and it doesn't happen. And so he lays back down, he gets back up, lays back down, does it three times, and just begs the Lord, please heal this boy. And, and Jesus does, or I mean, God does, and he comes back to life. And Elisha has a similar situation. So, so people in this day and age, they had seen or heard or read about something that had happened where someone was brought back from the dead. But this is different. There's a man who just says, arise. And, and the boy gets up. But, but he's confronted, um, as this crowds converge, you're confronted with this woman who is a widow. There are people in this room who either have been a widow or a widower or have walked closely with someone who is. When they read that, they knew exactly what, it, what the text meant. But I think it's possible for many of us to skim right over that. 
This is a woman who has lost her spouse. This is a woman who has lost the man that she slept in the same bed with for years. She's lost the man that she parented with, the man that provided for her. In this day and age, women did not work. It was the man's sole responsibility to provide financially. So she lost her financial support. This woman lost her friend, her companion, her lover. The effects would be felt all day and every day. I've heard it said with death that it gets easier, and I've heard people say that's baloney. It does not get easier. You just get used to it when you lose someone. All of us in this room have lost somebody that we care about. I'm not neglecting that, but drawing light to what this woman must have been going through as a widow. When she would wake up in the morning, the bed would be empty. When she would go buy groceries, she probably didn't technically quite go buy groceries like we do, but when she would go buy groceries, she'd be reminded of the fact that she doesn't need to buy as much groceries. When she's making a meal, she would remember, I I, I don't need that much. When she would do laundry, she would notice it. When their son was struggling with disobedience, she would think if, if, if his father was around. This woman would have had a rough time during the holidays. This woman might have been reminded if she couldn't open up a jar. She might be reminded of how much she misses her husband when something simple like the trash needs to be taken out. It's cold out, and I don't want to get up. This woman's a widow. And she has experienced pain that most of us in this room cannot fathom. I think out of the biggest things that people fear, losing a spouse and losing kids are probably in at least in the top five. A lot of people think that they fear the most is public speaking, but I think it's because they haven't thought through the ramifications of losing a child or losing a spouse. This woman has lost her spouse. I can tell you um, that we have had the honor and the horror of walking with someone through losing a spouse. Friend of ours, um, her husband was suddenly and tragically killed. Sarah got in a car, drove there, and held her. Over the coming months, she would need help with getting out of bed. She would need help with, I don't really know how we should spend our money. That's what he always took care of. Can someone help me with how I should live on a budget? This, this past weekend, Sarah's um, uncle, Teddy, passed away. And so yesterday we were at the memorial as Aunt Gloria fully says goodbye to her husband of over 60 years. The pain that is in this text that if you just skim over it, you miss. 
this woman is broken. And then her son dies. She's already broken. I know there are people in this room that have had miscarriages. I know there's people in this room that have had a stillborn child. I think that there's probably people maybe who have lost a child as well. From my understanding about losing a child, you suffer with tremendous guilt. If I could have just done this, if I could have just done that. And I think it's the same thing with a miscarriage. Maybe I just didn't treat my body right. Maybe I wasn't eating the right things. Maybe I didn't take enough vitamins. Maybe I, and you can begin to blame yourself. And you can have all of this guilt. I was supposed to care for this child, and, and I, I was supposed to love on them. I was supposed to provide for them. It's my understanding of losing a child that no one is ever prepared for it because it seems so unnatural. I don't think anybody goes into parenting thinking, oh, I'll probably bury this child. I think you're thinking, hopefully, this child will grow up and make enough money to pay for my funeral. I, I, I walked with a friend who lost his three-year-old daughter in a car accident. And you truly could see him mourn the loss of her starting kindergarten. He had to mourn the loss of her kindergarten graduation, which is cheesy as that sounds. He had to mourn the loss of her going to high school, of her going to a dance. To, he, he had to mourn the loss of all of it. One of the things that he said is, I feel like it, losing your child is the ultimate punishment because they are locked in your minds at the age they were when they died. I don't get to see what she looks like when she turns 15. She is forever locked as a three-year-old. I read about the long-term effects of losing a child has major effects on a marriage, you are over eight times more likely to divorce if you lose a child. Divorce rate's already 50%. You are eight times more likely to get divorced if you've lost a child. Most people who lose a child struggle with decision-making. They struggle with anxiety and depression. They have psychological problems that they have to deal with, health problems they have to deal with, social problems they have to deal with, occupational problems they have to deal with, and social problems they have to deal with. Most of them struggle with suicide thoughts for the rest of their life. For those who, who lose a child, your, your, in, your rate of cancer, your your the possibility of cancer goes up tremendously. Your possibility of substance abuse increases dramatically. My Aunt Judy, she buried my cousin, 22 years old, who was killed in a car accident. She became an alcoholic. She had no clue how to deal with 
what was going on inside of her. That's this woman in this text. And we can read it and we can go, oh, it's a widow, she lost her only son. What's Jesus do? But if we don't stop and insert into that and understand the pain that this woman is going through, then what Jesus does in response to it will be wasted on us. Yesterday, Sarah not only went to her uncle's memorial service, but her mom and dad's one of their best friends. Her son, this past week, died of a drug overdose. That has ramifications far greater than just for my in-laws, for even people in this room. The loss. that this woman is feeling is absolutely tremendous. She's lost her husband, now she's lost her child. She's saying goodbye to her child. She's saying goodbye to the one that probably comforted her through the whole time. She's saying goodbye probably to the number one reason she had to still live. She's mourning the loss that she'll never be a grandmother. My mom told me if she knew how fun it was to be a grandma, she just would have done that instead. <laughs> this woman has lost all hope. Life is not worth living. And then, Jesus, as if he knows the time when this boy will die, sets out on a journey walks 25 miles to get there at the exact right time that he's being carried out. Is it a coincidence that he gets there at that time? I don't think it is. He gets there after walking 25 miles with a considerable crowd, sees the woman, and it says, and he had compassion. Compassion in our dictionary is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another person who has been struck by misfortune. But it's accompanied with a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. Jesus doesn't just see her and pity her, like, oh, that's too bad, that would really suck. He sees her, he feels that deep in him and wants to do something about it. It comes from a Greek word, which sounds like I'm spitting. Splachnizma. The Greek word means to be moved in your inward parts. The nearest thing we can use to really translate it is gut-wrenching. Jesus sees this woman who's going through that pain, and he is gut-wrenched. It means to be so deeply moved that it affects your entire body. It's as if Jesus wanted to just throw up. It's as if he just got punched in the stomach. It is as if he, he can't fathom eating another meal because of the pain that this other person is experiencing. This is going to keep him up at night. It's that type of compassion. Jesus is so deeply moved, I would say, that 
that really what compassion, what this word that we translated to compassion that I'm not going to say again for fear of getting laughed at, but that word, it doesn't just mean sympathy. I think it means empathy. Jesus doesn't just feel bad for her. He takes that pain on when he sees her. He feels so much compassion that that he takes it in. Other translations say his heart went out to her. His heart broke. His heart overflowed. He was moved. When Jesus sees this woman who has lost her husband and has now lost her child, he has compassion on her. His heart breaks for this woman. His, His compassion, his empathy, leads him to action. He looks at the woman and says, do not weep. He puts his hand on the coffin. And the pallbearers just stop, dead in their tracks. And he says, young man, I don't, we don't know how old he is, but it says young man, and then later it says, and he gave him back to his mother. So it seems like the boy's young enough that Jesus can just pick up. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. One word. And I love Luke, is, uh, the author of Luke is a physician. He's a doctor, okay? So you have this doctor writing this, and the doctor says this, and the dead man sat up. Like, doesn't that sound, like, it doesn't make any sense to write it that way. And the boy woke up. He he sat up. The dead man sat up and spoke. The dead man spoke. The thing is, is when you die, your brain stops working, your heart stops beating, your blood stops flowing. And so when Jesus said arise, all of that happened simultaneously. Blood, heartbeat, brain waves. Your brain has to work to sit up, right? And so he, he sits right up and he begins to speak. From one word, there are people in this room who are probably like, this is just a story. If this is just a story, it's, just, it's, a, it's a cool story. But what if it's not? What if this guy named Jesus went through life, met this woman, this is an actual true thing that happened, I believe it is. And Jesus meets this woman and he has compassion on her. Jesus surrendered to compassion. We live in a day and an age where people are not very compassionate. If you get cut off, you might get shot, right? We live in a, in a time when you can be in a movie theater and someone can pull a weapon. If you think about the, the day and age in which we live in, Jesus sees a woman who he doesn't know in, in, in part, who he's never met in part, walks 25 miles, sees her, has compassion on her. But the thing is, is this is not a one-time event with Jesus. Jesus is not just compassionate in this moment. This word, splachnizema, is used 12 times in the Bible, and it's always used in association with Jesus. This kind of compassion can only be found in Jesus. 
the kind of compassion that you and I need as we go through this life and we deal with hard things. The Bible describes God as a God of all comfort, who comforts us in our time of affliction. But to see this even deeper, if you go through the Bible and you look at those 12 times in which Jesus, this word is used about him, this word that's translated to compassion, it's used, he sees a massive crowd. Jesus sees this massive crowd, and it says, and he has compassion on them, for they are like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has compassion, this type of compassion on people who are living life without a shepherd. Jesus also has compassion on the 5,000. When, when the 5,000 are with him, it says that they hadn't eaten for three days and Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus has compassion on those who are without food. There's two blind men and they want to be healed by Jesus and all of the other people around like pretty much just cast them aside. Just get out of here, get away. They rebuke them. And Jesus has compassion on them. He, he didn't just have compassion because they were blind, but he had compassion because they were blind and nobody wanted anything to do with him. He, he had compassion on the outcasts of society. The boy that was thrown into the fire by the demon that was in him. Can you imagine if you had multiple times fallen in fire, what your skin might look like? Jesus had compassion on this man, this boy. <clears throat> there's three times where the word compassion is used in association with Jesus' parables. The first one is the unmerciful servant. So what happens is this, this guy owes an amount of money he could never pay back, and he goes to the king who he owes the money to, and he begs, he pleads, please forgive me, don't make me pay this all back, I'll never be able to do it. And the Bible says, and, and he had compassion on him, pointing to who Jesus is. It goes on and it says, um, another, another parable which we're going to talk about next week is the parable of the Good Samaritan. This Samaritan is walking down and he sees a man who's been beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And it says, and he had compassion on him. And it's to point to who Jesus is and what he's like. The other one is the parable of the lost son. Son comes to his dad, says, dad, you're going to die soon, so just give me all your money now. The dad, okay, I'll give you the money now. He gives him his inheritance. He goes out and he squanders it. He blows it all. And then he realizes, I got nothing. I need to go and, and repent and, and, and apologize to my father. And he makes his way back home. And as he's a long way off, the father, who appears to just be sitting, watching from his front window, sees his son a distance and takes off running toward him because he had compassion on him. Every time this word translated to compassion is used, it's used in association with what Jesus is like. Jesus surrendered his life to a posture of compassion. This text is amazing. It's a huge miracle. Number one, what he did. There's three places in the Bible where Jesus raises somebody back to life with the exception of himself. This one, he, it's the... Um, it's the widow's son. The next one is going to be Jairus' daughter. And the third one is going to be Lazarus. Three times. Jesus lived his life, did his ministry for three years. So Jesus only averages bringing someone back to life three times. So once a year. But him having compassion on a people that are without a shepherd is daily. 
His compassion on people who are hungry is daily. His compassion on the outcasts of society is daily. The compassion that he displays to those who have been damaged by this world is daily. The third reason why this text is powerful to me, it's not just what he did, it's not just why he did it, it was the compassion that drove him, but the third reason is, what does this mean for us? What does that mean? Does it mean that if one of us have a child that, that unexpectedly dies, that Jesus is going to raise them back up? I wish. But I think that the ramifications of this are different than that. I think the ramifications of it is that God is a God of all comfort who wants to comfort us in our time of need. I think what this text shows us is far greater than that. There are people in this room who you need to hear that God, no matter what's going on in your circumstances in life, he wants to comfort you. He wants to be there with you. He has compassion on you. But there's a verse in Corinthians that says that if we... um, I'm giving my translation. If we only get compassion for this life on earth, then we are the most to be pitied. If Jesus comes and he raises this boy back to life, and let's say the mom's 30 years old. She's got to be older now. Let's say she's 40 years old. This woman's 40 years old. Her son is brought back to life. The life expectancy then is probably 50s. So she's, now okay, she gets 10 more years with her kid. That's, that's awesome. But if that's it... I think that what this text tells us is that God wants to comfort us in our time of need, but I think it points forward to something else. Think about what this text is really about. It's about Jesus who goes from a distant land, shows up, gives compassion to raise the dead to life. If you know the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, is the exact picture of that. Here's what it says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we've been made alive with Christ. Here's the thing. Who are you in this story? All of us, at one point in time, are this dead boy. The Bible teaches that all of us are born, and we're born, we're born sinners. We're looking out for our own way, our own way only. That's how we're born. That's how we're wired. And the wages of sin is death. So all of us deserve an eternal separation from God because of what we are inside, because we are sinners. But Jesus, but Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That verse, you know what that is? It's that Jesus was from a faraway country. He was was in heaven, and he came here to show compassion on his people, not just to, to raise a boy here, not just to give us compassion on our daily lives, but to give a compassion that solves the much bigger problem that you and I have. And the bigger problem that we have is that we are born sinners. The, the definition of compassion, if you remember, was a feeling of deep sympathy or sorrow by another per, for another person who's struck by misfortune. The greatest misfortune, the, the worst thing that is going on in anybody's life is that we are separated from God and we are in need of someone to fix that problem. And when Jesus saw 
he had compassion. He had a strong desire to do something about it. He came a distance from heaven to show compassion, to die on a cross, that we could have life. Not just life on this earth, but an abundant life, an eternal life with him. This text is amazing for three reasons. One, what he does, he, he brings a boy back to life. It's more amazing to me that it's because of his compassion. Nowhere in this text do you read about faith. Nowhere in the text do you read about anybody asking. Nobody begs. Nobody implores. Nothing happens except for Jesus sees it and he has compassion. The reason why Jesus performs this miracle is because he is a compassionate, compassionate God. The third reason why is because what it should do in us. Jesus sees this boy, he's dead. He says to him, arise. The boy sits up and he begins to speak. There are people in this room who you just needed to hear that God gives you comfort while you're on earth, but there are people in this room who need to hear Jesus doesn't just come to give comfort on earth. He wants to give a comfort that leads to eternal life. And there's a third group of people I think that are here. What you need to hear is that Jesus doesn't just do that. He says to this dead boy, arise, and he sits up and he begins to speak. There are people in this room, we need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is compassionate and that each of us who were dead, he called us and he said, arise, and we arose. And now we are to go through this life living like Christ, displaying that Christ-likeness. So guess what that means? That means we know that uh, James 5 says the Lord is compassionate. We know that God is a God of all comfort who comforts us in our time of affliction. What's it say after that? So that we can comfort others in their time of affliction. Jesus shows compassion to make us a compassionate people who've been changed by his grace. Colossians 3.12 says, put on compassionate hearts. That means that for those of us who were dead and Jesus said, arise, we are to live like Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus showed compassion on those who were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus showed compassion to those who were hungry. He showed compassion to those who were sick. He showed compassion to the outcasts of society. He showed compassion to those who were oppressed. He showed compassion to those who had lost all hope. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is what people should see in you. That is what people should see in me. We should be a people, if we have been made new, if, if Jesus had said, arise, then we should be a people who show compassion to the lost, to the brokenhearted, to the widows, to the orphans, to those who have experienced loss, to those who are living in pain, to those who have been abused, to those who have been neglected. I can tell you, I wanted nothing to do with God. I was dead as a doornail. But Jesus said, arise. Out of his compassion, this compassionate Jesus left heaven, came to earth to display a compassion that has ramifications on this life, the life to come. I don't know which um, group of people you were, but my hope is, is that us 
diving deep into this text that you see Jesus in a new way. You see him as one that surrendered his life to compassion. Let's pray. God, I am humbled that you would show me compassion. I'm humbled that you would walk up to the coffin that I was living in, the coffin that was my life when I was 19 years old, and that you would say, arise. God, I pray that people in this room would be comforted for their current life, for the life that is to come. As they, as they live through this life, all of us in this room are going to have huge tragedy that strikes. So God, I pray that you would be with us, that we would see you as compassionate then. But God, I pray more importantly than that, that we would see that you are a compassionate God and that compassion goes far beyond just this life on earth. I pray that we would see the compassion that will drive us into eternity with you. And God, I pray that that compassion that you have shown us will not be lost on us, but that we would be a people that look like our Lord, our Lord Jesus.